We read in 1 Corinthians 1 that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And throughout the Bible, we see that God frequently follows this pattern of even from the beginning, he created everything out of nothing. We remember with the life of Abraham and Sarah, he chose an old barren couple to make a great nation out of. He chose David, the shepherd boy, to defeat the giant and lead the nation of Israel. He chose, he chose the cross to bring deliverance and salvation. And we see this pattern that even with us, he uses people like us to display his, his wisdom and his glory. And our passage this morning is no different. God has this pattern of using the undervalued, the overlooks to do something amazing, to do something glorious. And in our passage this morning, we see that God promises to send a king, a coming king in power, in wisdom, but also a king who is maybe different than we would expect, a humble king, a lowly king who will gently lead. And our passage this morning is Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. And the word of the Lord says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. God, open our eyes to see the amazing truths in your word this morning. So as we look at this passage, we see this roadmap that Jesus is a coming king, that he's a coming king who comes humbly and lowly, gently, that he is a king who is filled with the spirit. 
He's a king who brings righteousness and peace, and he's a king who will, uh, who will draw all the nations of the earth to himself. And first in this passage, we see that he is a, a lowly, a gentle, a humble king who will deliver from oppression. So if you're familiar with Isaiah, then you know that Israel, this is right before they're, they're kind of in captivity. They're about to be taken. And so a little background, if you read back in chapter 10, right before this, we see in, in this section in verses 20 through 34 of chapter 10 that they're under the yoke of bondage to Assyria. And God says this in verse 25, that in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And so God will stop his judgment on Israel and he'll instead he'll turn and he'll punish the oppressor, oppressor. he'll punish Assyria and he'll break, it uses this language of breaking the, the yoke of burden off their neck, verse 27. And this, this rule over Israel is described like this, this breaking of the rule, verses 33 and 34, that the Lord will lop off the bows with terrifying powers, like he's cutting down the tree. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And so this this great and mighty tree, think redwood forest, these towering trees, this great, lofty, exalted tree will be cut down and the oppressor Assyria will be no more. They'll be set free. And instead, instead of the Assyrians, God will send another king to rule, not an oppressor, not one who's overbearing on them, but a humble, a lowly, uh, a shoot, not this lofty tree, but just this little offshoot of this stump, one who is humble to reign over his people. And so that's the context of this coming king. This is what Isaiah is prophesying about, that this king is going to come. He's going to break the bonds of oppression for the people, but he's going to do it so that he doesn't bring a different kind of oppression or a different kind of rule, but he's, he's freeing. He's, he's bringing, a, as Matthew would say, uh, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so that's really, we think about Christmas songs. We sang one this morning, but that's when we sing the song, Oh, Holy Night, it says that in his name, all oppression shall cease, right? And this is, this is one of the places in the Bible where that, that language comes from. This is what Jesus was going to do. And if you just think for a second about what that would mean for Israel, think of the time of Jesus when he was born. Israel was under the the ruling of Rome, right? Rome was occupying Jerusalem, occupying Israel. So they had reminders of it everywhere. They had to pay taxes to Rome. They had to see the soldiers as they walked down the street. And so they would read this passage, read of deliverance from this oppressor. And that would mean something to them. That would, that would be something they long for, right? And we can we can relate, we can think of other people throughout history who have, who have faced this kind of oppression, a similar oppression, whether that's slavery and how a slave would look at this passage and long for deliverance, whether that's Christians throughout the world right now who are oppressed 
for their Christianity. They would, they would long for the king to come and deliver them from oppression, right? The, the fact that this king would come and deliver and break bonds, that is good news that the people looked forward to. The oppressed have always needed this lowly king, Jesus, to come and break their oppression. And yet, when we think about what Jesus did when he came, it's helpful to remember, how did he do that? How did he break the bonds of oppression, right? Because when he came, he didn't deliver from that physical oppression. After Jesus was here and after he died and rose and went to heaven, Israel was still occupied by Rome. They still had to pay taxes. They still were reminded of Rome by the soldiers they saw, and even Jerusalem would be destroyed shortly thereafter. They were still reminded of that. It wasn't a, a physical deliverance. No, Jesus' deliverance was something deeper, really, than that outward deliverance, that outward oppression. He, he showed us as he came to deliver from oppression that his deliverance was something that was more vital, more fundamental that we needed, a deliverance that everyone faces and everyone needs, that when he, he came humbly into the world as a baby born in a major, when he came humbly as the king riding on the donkey into Jerusalem, he came to deliver from the ultimate oppression of sin and death. And so he, even in doing this, even in coming as this kind of king, he's reframing our thinking to remember that the ultimate deliverance that we need is not deliverance from something external, some situation we face, but it's deliverance from something that rules even deeper in us, that has its roots dug deep in our hearts. We need deliverance from sin. The Bible would describe it as every one of us being being slaved, enslaved to sin, having this ruler over us in our everyday lives that we don't just have to, to see occasionally as we walk down the street, but we live with every day. And we need deliverance from this sin, from the ruthless rule of sin. And when Jesus died on the cross, he, he delivered from the power of sin and death so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life and will be set free from the power of sin. This is the king. He came to deliver from oppression, from this oppressive ruler. And in doing this, he reminds us that there is, there is no sin in us that cannot be overcome by the power of Jesus. So think about that sin that you just can't seem to shake or that just keeps coming back and you somehow keep falling into Right. Jesus, the king, is able to deliver. He's able to destroy that enemy of sin and deliver us from the rule of that sin in our life so that true change is possible in Jesus. Right. He doesn't give us a, a timetable for that. He doesn't tell us how quickly that will happen. And we know that in some form or fashion we'll be fighting this enemy of sin until death, until we see Jesus face to face and are transformed to be like him. But he does promise that this will be true deliverance, real deliverance through Jesus so that we can be delivered from our greatest 
need. This is what Jesus came to do. This is what King Jesus does, what we need him to do in our lives. And only a good, a humble king can deliver us from oppression. And so look at this passage. Look at how he describes, Isaiah describes the character of this coming king, right? You can sum it up by saying that he is a king who is filled with the spirit. So as we look at verses 1 through 5, we see this idea that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And so you remember throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't indwell all people like he does today. He indwells all believers. But you remember that he would only indwell at certain times and certain people. And especially we see it frequently with the, with the leaders of Israel. So we see it with, with Moses. We see it with the judges. Think of Samson or Gideon and other judges. Think of the kings of Israel with Saul and David, right? The, the king being indwelt, being having the spirit meant that he would be a king who is the leader of the people and who was filled with the spirit and all that the spirit brings. And specifically, it lists these few traits that the spirit brings this wisdom and understanding and counsel so that this king would know, he would know exactly what was needed. He would know all information and how to fit it together to know what was exactly best and good to do for his people. And again, that's, that's a contrast to us of this oppressive ruler of sin, because often we think of sin and the lies it tells us that if you do this, it will be better. Uh, that was the lie that Eve believed, right? God is, God is withholding something from you. You'll be like God. You'll know it'll be better for you if you take the fruit and eat. That's the lie that sin often tells us that you're missing out. There's something better. It's better to go this way. But this passage tells us that, no, this king, he has perfect knowledge and knows everything. And so he, he really does know what is good and best. And following him will be best. And he knows how to bring good about for his people. And so we, we must listen to King Jesus and reject the lies of sin, reject the, the rule of sin in our lives. And it tells about how the Spirit not only brings wisdom and counsel, but, but power, right? It's one thing to know, to know what's right to do, what's good to do. It's another thing to have the ability to do it. Right? You can probably look around and see things that probably aren't as they should be or something that should be fixed or things like that. But oftentimes we individually are limited. We don't have the ability to go change it, whether that's because of time or strength or authority. We don't have the ability to change things oftentimes. But that's not a problem for this king. This coming king not only would know everything and what needs to be done, but he would have power to do it the spirit of power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power to, to make all things new, the power to overcome sin and every enemy. He has all power. He has the spirit of power. And so he is a far better and capable ruler than we are. And he is a good king who leads us in this way. And the final description of being filled with the spirit is that he, 
he leads, the spirit leads him to fear the Lord. And we're probably familiar with that, that phrase, the fear of the Lord. But whenever you hear fear, I want you to think of the word control. So oftentimes what we fear are things that control us, or, or maybe a different way to say it would be the things that control us are the things that we fear. So a personal example, I'm afraid of snakes. I don't like snakes. Being afraid of snakes controls how I will try to avoid snakes or how I will react when I see a snake, right? And you can fill in the blank with whatever your fear might be, but Fears often control, they, they dictate how we act in certain situations. And the same is true, not always does fear mean that we're scared of something. The Bible doesn't always have that in mind when it says fear, but it always has this controlling factor when it talks about fear. And so fear of the Lord means we're, we're perfectly controlled by him. We're perfectly lining up with him. And this coming king would perfectly line up with the Lord with King Jesus. And we know because of him being God, we can see how he would be perfectly at one with the will of the Father and being filled with the Spirit would desire to do the will of the Father. And that the fear of the Lord would, would lead him. And that's really an example to us of what the Spirit does in us as well. As we increase in the fear of the Lord, it means that our lives will line up more with what God says, we will, we will want, we'll be controlled. I think of the Apostle Paul saying the, the love of God compels us. It controls us, constrains us to do what he wants to obey. That's what, that's what the spirit of God does in us. It leads us to godliness, right? And so we can think that on the flip side, if we're not being led by the spirit, if we're not living in this godliness, then we can go to the other side and think, well, there's something wrong in that. Either we're not submitting to the leading of the Spirit, the rule of King Jesus in our lives, or it's possible that the Spirit is not even in our lives directing us. And so we need to make sure that we are knowing and submitting to the rule of God. It's a sign of the Spirit in our lives, and it's what the Spirit does when he enters us at salvation so that our lives will line up with this King, the leading of King Jesus. And so this is the, the character of the King. He comes to deliver. He comes with perfect knowledge and wisdom and power. And then he, he has a certain kind of kingdom. It's no surprise that this kind of King will bring a kingdom that is filled with righteousness and peace, right? We see this in verses three through nine, specifically verse four. We see here that he'll rule with righteousness and equity so that he'll bring justice to all, even to the, the poor and meek. Your, your ability to gain justice will not be determined by your position in life or your ability to pay a good lawyer, right? Justice will be perfectly brought about in his kingdom for everyone, and that is incredibly comforting. It's, it's convicting if we have wronged others to know that this judgment is coming. But it's comforting to know that when we are wronged, God has not overlooked that. He has not missed that. That he has written it down and is, will remember it and bring justice. He will repay one day. And he will 
not only bring justice, and in doing so, he will judge the wicked, as this says. And it's interesting, just one thing to note of how he's going to do this. In verse 4, it talks about how it will be with the rod of his mouth. It will be with the lips. He shall kill the wicked. And that's just an interesting way to think about it. It's a reminder that we, we live or die based on the words of God. Right, God has given us his standard of how he created us to be, of how he commands us to live. And our lives, if they line up with that, we will be declared righteous. If they don't, then we will be declared guilty. And the, the kicker is that none of us line up with that. Right? None of us line up with the righteousness that God has spoken in his word. But his word doesn't just stop there. It also declares to us his word, his lips tell us that he has made a way to be declared righteous. So that if we submit our lives to King Jesus as our Lord and King, that he will say, he will declare, he will justify us. And so that we will be saved so that we are judged by his word, the standard of his word. So this king, he, he perfectly brings justice. He perfectly brings peace. There will be peace, not just inside of people. This is always amazing to think about. There won't just be peace inside of us or between people, but there will be peace throughout the whole universe, within all of creation, right? Between even the, the animals, there will be peace. And that is, that is really what we long for. Right, that there will be peace that is brought in every aspect of life. And so that when we stop and think about this, we think that really the only one who is able to bring this peace and this righteousness is King Jesus. Right, as we imitate him and we should imitate him and his rule, hopefully. There is, there is more peace, there's more righteousness, but we know that he is the only one who is able to do this. That when we place our hopes in anything else, we, we think that anything else is going to fully fix the problems or fully bring peace to our world, that it's fool's gold. That Jesus is the answer. He is the way. He is the king. And only as we submit to him as the king will his kingdom of peace and righteousness be worked out in our lives and eventually in the new creation be worked out throughout the whole world. And as a church, that applies maybe uniquely to us because think about this. Where on earth right now can you get a little glimpse of what the kingdom of God will be like in the future? When, when Jesus is reigning over all the earth, and it's going to be perfect, there'd be perfect peace, perfect righteousness. Right now, where can you get a little glimpse, a little taste of what that will be like? Well, it's only where there are people who are submitted to the kingship of Jesus, right? And the only place where that is, is where the church is, where the people of God are gathered together and submitting to God and interacting together with him as their king. It doesn't always work perfectly, right? We know that. But that's why the Bible instructs us so much to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to, to live out the one another's, like we've been studying with Brother Mike on Wednesdays, that 
we as citizens of the kingdom, citizens of King Jesus right now, have this opportunity to, to taste what this future will be like. But we also have an opportunity to display to the world what true righteousness, what true peace, what, what a kingdom of God would look like. And that will be a beacon of light, as it says in this passage, as it describes that Jesus will be a beacon. We as the church get to be salt and light to the world and display a little taste of this. And we know that it will, it will draw people to Jesus. We, we remember that to some it will be the aroma of death unto death. It will be off-putting to some as we display this righteousness. That's what Paul says. But to some... It will be the aroma of life unto life. It'll be a sweet smell that draws them to Jesus so that they will want to know this king, want to follow him. And that's the opportunity we have as we follow him, as we submit to him in our lives, not just individually, but as a church. And so not only do we do this, but as we see this passage end, It's not just the citizens of the kingdom who will display this kingdom, but the king himself. He will shine. He will be like a beacon, a light that shines forth and draws the nations to himself. They will come. They will inquire of him. They will come and be a part of his kingdom and submit to him. And we know that he's been doing this. Really, we're evidence that he's already started this work. That over the past 2,000 years, he's already stood as a light, as a beacon, drawing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. And he will continue to do that until the end, until the new creation, until what we read in Revelation is true, where there are people from every tribe, tongue, nation who is gathered around his throne, gathered around the throne, submitting to the king. There again is that king language in the end. And so this in Isaiah is, is what the king is prophesied to do. He will be a, a humble king. He will be a king who breaks the bonds of oppression and sets us free from sin. He will be a king who brings righteousness and peace, who's perfectly filled with the spirit. And he will be a king who draws the nations to himself. And so the question is for us, are we a part of this kingdom and not just are we a part of it but are we submitting to king jesus right now if we are a part of it if jesus is our king this passage makes us give thanks that this is the kind of king we have who has delivered us who's humble who's not oppressive in leading us but gently leads us that's reason to give thanks to rejoice especially as this time As Christmas approaches, we remember the birth, the coming of Jesus, that this is what we anticipate. His coming would be this kind of king coming into the world. And it's a reminder that if Jesus is not our king, that here in Isaiah, here in the Bible, it offers us this picture of what this king is like, that he is the king. As we read in Daniel, he will reign over all, for all eternity. And yet he he is a good king that calls us into his kingdom. He holds forth the, the freedom of becoming a citizen of his kingdom. And he offers us to come to his glorious resting place. 
as this passage says, and become a part of his kingdom. And so this passage in Isaiah prophesies of what the king will be like and what his kingdom will be like. And it confronts us and tells us to submit to the king and to do that today. So let's pray together as we close. Father God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your plan that you have planned throughout the history of the world before the foundations were laid to send King Jesus to unite all peoples together under him as in his kingdom with him as king. Lord, we thank you that you have gathered us together into your kingdom. You've transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of your love, as Colossians tells us. We pray that we would live as citizens of the kingdom. We would submit to your reign. We would imitate you in your character, in your righteousness and peace. And we would display individually and together what it means to be a part of your kingdom and tell the good news of how the king has come to deliver us and offers that deliverance to everyone who will accept him and submit to him. And God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.